If you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn to, as we mentioned, in the fifth chapter of the book of Joshua. And we're going to cover these 15 verses, Lord willing, in our lesson this morning in regards to uh, Joshua and the events that take place here before we get into, uh, obviously, in chapter 6 and 7 where uh, we see some of the battles that actually begin uh, as they come in to claim the land, uh, battle against the enemies of God and, of course, the enemies of God's people at this point. And uh, so... We see something of the goings-on of this. Uh, let's begin, first of all, reading verse 1. And we see here in verse 1 in particular, the fear of the Lord upon the heathen. And that's what I've entitled this heading, and I'll explain it more into the application of it, though. Again, knowing that there is a fear that saves, a fear that doesn't. And so keep that in mind when we use that phrase. So it's, again, a biblical phrase used in the correct manner in the way that we're going to be looking at it this morning. But nonetheless, we see here the fear of the Lord upon the heathen. Notice verse 1. And it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel until we were passed over, that their heart melted, neither was their spirit in them any more because of the children of Israel. So we here see here the fear of the Lord uh, that is upon the heathen here. Now, the reason for this, of course, in the last two chapters we saw particularly uh, God's mighty hand being in effect, causing the Jordan River to be uh, dried up and actually to stop at a point. And then the, the, he caused the land to be dry underneath the water children. And then the people were able to go dry shot over against uh, over towards the land of promise. So in reality, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Israelites passed over uh, the Jordan. If you remember at that time, it said in previous chapters that the river was at its flood stage. They were going over, and yet God in His power was able to cause that to stop. And the water is dammed up on one side. The water continues to flow until there isn't any more on that point. And thus... This is dried up and then the people are able to go over. Obviously, this was a very mighty deed. And this was a deed that God himself performed as it was directed here in the word of God. And obviously, here from verse 1, we see that the news of this traveled very fast. The Amorites obviously probably may have seen some of this taking place. They were the people dwelling right there against the Jordan River. That is, they had the land there. But notice, it's not just the Amorites who know this, but also, he says in verse 5, the kings of the Canaanites were also a little bit worried here. And if you look at the, the description it's given here, which were by the sea. And he means there, the writer does, means the uh, Mediterranean Sea. So if you think of your Bible map here this morning, I'm going to turn in the back, that's fine. Most of your Bibles may have maps. But if you'll notice, there's a quite not a lot of land. It's still a small area nonetheless. But in uh, retrospect and also relatively speaking, that was a great distance away. They didn't have telegraph. They didn't have TVs. They didn't have pick up their cell phone and, and call somebody. Hey, did you know, King, this took place over here at the, by the river? No, I didn't know that. Well, thanks for letting me know. They don't have any of that. This had to travel either by letter or it had to travel by uh, word of mouth, most likely word of mouth. Either way, though, the news has gotten clear over to the other side of the land of Canaan. And what has happened? Well, they see here that, or uh, we see here that these folks here are very worried about it, uh, concerned. 
And uh, they had to think, well, this is no ordinary people. And obviously, this is no ordinary God that's directing these folks over here. Now, these Canaanites and Amorites obviously had their gods. And uh, they would have been uh, those kind of people who believed in uh, a very many gods. And so, But here's Israel, one God. And whatever they may have known of that, they would also know here that he was a God who was able to direct his people over a mighty river at this time and come into the land. And, of course, they're very fearful of this. So we look at this and we see here that as far as this was concerned, as far as these people are concerned, this was not done in some corner or some something done in the secret. This is something now very public and the folks here are very worried. Notice again, and it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, that was on the west banks of Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan for before the children of Israel, until we, notice we there, we were passed over, that their heart melted. What happened here? When they hear this news, however it came to them, their heart melted, neither was their spirit in them any more. So they hear this terrible news that there is a God who is on Israel's side who is able to do this. And they realize that they're not going to be able to stand against such a God. Now, their false deities and the devils that they worshipped may have been able to work some miracles for them, at least in an evil way, but nothing like this has been done. And so they're very terrified of this. Now, again, if you think a moment, remember when uh, Israel had sinned several times and God has to, or Moses comes to God and he begins to argue or to intercede for Israel's sake. And one of the things he said, what would the people in the surrounding nations think of you that you have destroyed your own people that you led out of the the land of Egypt. In other words, they wouldn't think you would be able to carry on the work that you had continued. And so this was an argument that uh, Moses made in light of the situation that the nation of Israel was in. And they say, he says, what would they think of you? Well, why would they think or how would they think? that? Well, once again, the news would get around. And so here again is this idea that we see that the news didn't just stay in one place. It obviously traveled very quickly and even over the other side of Canaan. And notice the results. Their hearts melted and there was no spirit left in them. Now, actually, this is what took place there in verse 1 about their heart melting and their spirit being not left in them. This was something that was prophesied or promised to the nation of Israel when they got over there. And we've looked at that before in the book of Exodus. He promised Israel that when they got over the land, over into the land, that he would cause the people to flee before them. He would cause the people to their hearts would melt. And here we see that promise being taken and fulfilled. And these folks that he mentions here, the Amorites and the Canaanites, they weren't a bunch of sissies by nature. They were very warlike people. And so he's caused these warlike people to become very scared of the fact that there is these Israelites coming over the water here and he's called them to tremble. I'm trying to find the book of Amos. I should have wrote this down. Amos chapter 2. I'll just turn there. Never mind, I found it. Amos 2 and verse 9. And notice he's speaking here of the Amorites. And notice how he describes them. 
Yet destroyed I the Amorite before you, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. Well, we recognize that he did that. But notice how he describes them. He says, these were people who were like tall as cedars. And they were strong as oaks. In other words, this wasn't a wimpy nation, the Amorites. This was a strong people. The Canaanites, it could be said of them, they were very warlike. And yet, when they hear this news, God supernaturally imposes upon them to be scared. Well, the application, just a quick one here on this, not so much on that point, but again, notice how fast the news got to them. How, brethren, we should be bold and quick in proclaiming the news of sin, that people know what sin is, where they, the law does that, but also of the good news of the redemption is Christ Jesus. I mean, if that kind of news like this can spread... Why can't we spread the gospel as fast and be bold with the truths of Christ? Well, something to think about there. Well, what do we see secondly? Secondly, from verses 2 through 9, we see the Lord here commands Joshua to circumcise the people. And at that time, the Lord said unto Joshua, Make these sharp knives and circumcise against, again the children of Israel the second time. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. All the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness by the way after they came out of Egypt. Now all the people that came out were circumcised. That would be the first time they were circumcised. But all the people that were born in the wilderness by the way as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. For the children of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness till all the people that were men of war which came out of Egypt were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord unto whom the Lord sware that he would not show them the land which the Lord sware unto their fathers that he would give us a land that floweth with milk and honey. And their children whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not circumcised them by the way. That is, as they were traveling to the land of Canaan. And it came to pass, when they had done circumcising all the people, that they abode in their places in the camp till they were whole. That is, until they were well, children. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you, Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. So we see here that the Lord commands Joshua to circumcise the folks. But we also see the reason as to why there is a necessity here to do so. The reason why, obviously, as he's already said, stated here, is that the folks who first came out of Egypt, their fathers, they were circumcised. But, of course, they sinned against God. And you remember after the people had... Uh, the spies were sent into the land of Canaan. They came back with a, a semi-good report, and then it turned out to be an evil report. And they gave the thing, well, there's Amalekites over there. There's tall men that will be, will be killed. We shouldn't do this. And, of course, they had tempted God ten times, and he said, he, this is enough. He says, from, from this point on, you, the adults, will not go into the land of Canaan. I will take your children over, but I will not take you over. So, for 40 years, they wandered around the what they call the wilderness of sin there. 
and thus they didn't go over. And then when all of those folks had died, except for the two men that he'd promised to go over, and of course their children, then this is the point where we're at now. The children of Israel, the children of the children, are ready to go in and have already come in, as we see from our text. Well, what happened? There haven't been circumcised yet. And so there is a necessity now that those children be circumcised. You notice back up in verse uh, 2, it says that the children of Israel the second time. The first time was when they came out of Egypt. This will be the second time as far as the whole is concerned. And these are the children of the children who rebelled against God. They haven't been circumcised. So now, before they are able to partake of what? Well, the Passover in verse 10. They have to be circumcised. They have to follow the law. The law said you couldn't partake of the law, uh, the of um, the Passover unless uh, you were circumcised. And so he has to circumcise the people. So really there's three reasons basically as to why they need to be circumcised. One, they weren't obviously. First one is because to have the reproach rolled away. We see that in verse 9. And what he means by that is not necessarily clear. But uh, the children of Israel were in Egypt for hundreds of years. And now they're gone. They were in servitude. They were in slavery. And he may have been uh, speaking of that event. So it's been taken away from them now. They are now a free people in the land of promise itself. And the sign of that is they're going to be circumcised uh, to show forth that. Secondly, they would be prepared to celebrate the Passover, as we're going to see in a little bit in verse 10. Again, the law commanded that they be circumcised before they partake. And then also I see here, and as others have as well, this would be a trial to their faith. You say, well, how could that be? Well, I'd say two ways. One, being circumcised as an adult would be a very trying thing, I think. And uh, and we'll show you how that in just a moment as far as why that would be, of course. And the second thing is, they're on the other side. They're in the enemy's territory at this point. Wouldn't you agree? The Amorites are here. The Canaanites further to the west. They could all have ganged up on these folks who had just been circumcised. What would happen, you think, if us males here this morning were circumcised? Do we believe we would be up and running around very quickly after that? Well, of course not. We would be sore. And that's exactly how the Scripture describes it. No need to be turning red here this morning, being embarrassed. This is biblical things. So, here again, need to get the filth out of your mind if you think anything wrong about it. This is stuff that the Scripture speaks about. And thus, it's fair game to talk about. And thus, it's also right and holy. Every word of God is pure. Well, when they had cut the foreskin off of the male, and his member, then obviously you would be very sore. In fact, that was used, you remember, at one point with Simeon and Levi. Remember when uh, Jacob's daughter, I never get her name right, I think it's Dinah, if I'm wrong on that, y'all are sure to correct me, uh, on that issue. And uh, she went out into the land, and the Shechemites, one of the boys, got her, and he laid with her and defiled her. Then the sons hear about it, and they plot to destroy the Shechemites. And how they do it? Well, they said, well, we'll only come in and trade with you, and you can have our daughter after every one of you are circumcised. And these guys believed them, the city did, and so... They, too, were looking for devious things, as we read in the text. And so, Simeon and the, uh, the, the, the city circumcised, and then while they're still sore, Simeon and Levi come in with great wrath, and they destroy all the city. Well, that's the point there to show that it must be a rough going to have 
yourself circumcised because you're unable to even defend yourself. It is so bad. Okay, now, put that back into the context of what we're dealing at now. The nation of Israel are here in this promised land that is full of their enemies. And they have been circumcised. They're not going to be able to defend themselves as well as Levi and Simeon of old knew that. Yet here they are. They've been circumcised here in the enemy's territory. And what are they to think of this? But Lord, look, this, I mean, if I do this, how am I going to be able to fight and defend myself against the enemies that I'm here in the land with? Well, they had to trust God and Joshua that this was going to be a protected thing. And guess what? He did. How did he protect them? Well, we go back to verse 1 and we see it. He caused the na- those nations to their very hearts to melt before them. So here was their protection. They weren't going to be attacked because God in His mighty providence and in His power caused them, those nations to fear them. So here they're sitting comfortable and they are sitting safe. Comfortable, relatively speaking. Sitting safe here at this point. And so they're trusting God. So this was not only the other reasons as to why they were circumcised, but it would have been a great trial to their faith to believe that what God had said to do would be the correct thing and also they would be protected in doing it. There's obviously some application in that and we'll hope to get to that in a little bit. And then notice in verses 10 through 12, we see uh, they partake of the Passover. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal, which you remember it means in verse 9, rolling or to have the the stuff rolled off of them from Egypt. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So we see the eating then of the Passover. Uh, actually, obviously here, we won't take the time, but they're following the commands of the law in this measure. That is, they could not partake of the Passover without being circumcised. But notice something in particular here that the manna ceases. Remember, for 40 years, they had eaten manna in the wilderness of sin. God had every morning, uh, except for the Sabbath, six days a week, God had rained down manna for them. And on the sixth day, there was twice as much manna given so that the next day they wouldn't have to go on the Sabbath and defile it by gathering food for themselves. I hint there, brethren, how careful we need to be about keeping the Sabbath, even in matters such as this. Well, I've got to feed my family. Well, he'll provide. Do you not believe that? What's your, where's your faith? Where's our faith in these things? Well, either way, neither man, neither here nor there on that. The point is the manna ceases. What was the manna representing, you remember? If you go to the New Testament in John, it's a tip, it typified what? Typified that Jesus was the bread of the world. He says that. So he's the true manna. And uh, we won't get into all the type of that, but he is a type of the bread of life. And Of course, if we're hungering, let me assure you this morning that Jesus is that bread to us. And we feed upon him by faith. And the only way to eat him, by the way, in this manner in which we're speaking, 
is by faith and by faith alone. But all that ceases for them as far as that goes. And now they're able to partake as God said they would. Here again is another fulfillment of the promise of God. That when they got into the land, there would, be, there would be enough there for them. And notice here, they're not eating things that, at this point, that they have grown. Where'd they get this from? This was stuff that God provided them through the evil nations that dwelt in the land. And so again, we see the graciousness of God towards His people. Then finally, in verses 14 through 15, actually 13 through 15, excuse me, uh, Joshua meets the captain of the Lord of hosts. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the Lord of, or excuse me, I said that wrong, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. So we see here then that Joshua then meets the captain of the host of the Lord. Notice here in 13, Joshua was standing, or where he was at, he was probably meditating on perhaps the correct way to go in and to take Jericho because he knows that he has to do so. He's probably thinking about that and he happens, as he says here in verse 13, he does look up and he beholds a man standing there. Not just any man, but he is a man, obviously, who has his sword drawn. And this art obviously brings forth the question from Joshua that would probably be the right one to ask. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Are you going to fight with us or are you going to fight against us? Notice here something of the boldness and the confidence, first of all, of Joshua. I'm not saying here that he was being irreverent towards the Lord here. Probably didn't know who he was at the moment, obviously. Because he says, who are you for, us or them? And here, Joshua's bold in the sense that he's ready to defend. Which are you for? Because obviously the man's standing there with a, with a sword drawn, ready to do battle, or so it appears. A drawn sword didn't mean uh, peace. It meant there was going to be some action taking place. But notice how the Lord here answers him. He says, no, art thou for us or for our adversaries? He says, no. But as captain of the host of the Lord, I am now come. I used to think, and I show you how our minds can change on things, but I used to think when he said nay here, he wasn't answering the question at all. I'm neither for you nor against you. But I don't think he's saying that. I think the answer lies in the fact, no, I'm not against you. I am really for you. And he uses the phrase there, captain of the host of the Lord. The host of the Lord, this is what I was not understanding, the host of the Lord is the people of God. And it also includes angels and stuff such as that, and that would be true here too. But they are known as the host of the Lord in other places. So, this is Israel that he says he's come to be for them. So, I think he's answering uh, in reality, I'm for you. And because, again, notice the reaction of, of Joshua at this point. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? So now he recognizes, at least in measure, who is here before him. And it is the Lord. By the way, you notice it's in all caps when he says, Host of the Lord. 
And uh, he does say, Lord, little Lord, there in verse 14, as Joshua recognizes him. But other, who do you think this is in reality? I think it's an angel? I think it's just a fella? Uh, I believe it to be Christ. He is the captain of his people. Hebrews 2, just for, for reference sake, if, uh, he's actually called in Hebrews, uh, in chapter 2 and verse 10, the captain of our salvation. Notice in Hebrews 2 and verse 10, or listen, he says, For it became him, that is Christ, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons of their... Oh, I missed it. Bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. We also know that uh, he is a commander. He's the leader. Isaiah 55, 4 says, Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. And also a description of the Lord in Revelation 19, verse 11 through 14. If you're taking notes again, you can look at that later. And we see it speaking of Christ with a sword in his hand. And he is the very word of God. So it's Christ here who's come to... Uh, to be for the people of God. And notice verse 15, And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. You know why it was holy? It wasn't because it was in the land of Israel, as some teach today, but because that was where the presence of the Lord was. Christ was there. And that's what made this. The reason why we are a holy assembly this morning, not because of us, but because of Christ, whose presence is with his people. Well, let's apply this uh, for the few minutes we have remaining here. Uh, We noticed at the beginning, as I said in verse 1 there, we see the fear of the Lord upon many, uh, those of nations there. Uh, Again, please make note that there is a saving fear, that is a fear that, God's people do possess and they do fear the Lord and that causes them to flee from sin and to do righteousness. But there's also a fear that does not save. And this was the kind of fear that was upon the Amorites and the Canaanites. They feared God not because He was a loving Savior to them, but he, they feared Him because He was the God of... He was their adversary to them. So yes, there is the worldly manner that people have fear. And we've pointed out some scriptures in the past showing you that they can, you can have fear and then still go out and commit some of the most gross of sins. So obviously, there is a saving faith, or a fear, and there is a fear that does not save. So we need to examine our hearts in light of that. It's good that you fear Him, but it better be the right kind of fear before the Lord. Secondly, Notice here in this passage as well, God overcame the natural inclination of these kings. At one point, you know, they're, they're warlike. They're fierce people. They don't fear others. They're like giants. They're, they have the strength of oaks and so forth. And yet God is able to make them cowards. God supernaturally imposed upon them to be cowards, which was against the nature of them. So what does that tell us? Well, God is Lord over our minds and over our affections. 
away with this idea that man is some self-autonomous fellow who's got free will. He can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, when he wants. Actually, that's what God is. He does what he wants, when he wants, to whom he wants, how he wants. That's an attribute of God. Why would you want to put that in a man? God is the one who is absolutely free and sovereign. Not man. And man is under the control of God. Even to the point that he can get into the mind and make these fierce-like people to quake in their shoes. So, yeah, God can change the mind. Sure he can. Who wouldn't believe that? Unless you're, you're in love with self and free will. Thirdly, the sins of others can often put us in seemingly difficult places. I said seemingly, because they may seem that way to us. But in reality, God had everything under control here, didn't He? The sins of these folks in previous lives, I mean previous lives, in previous times, we're uh, Hindus here, we believe in reincarnation. No, not really. Uh, The sins of their fathers, that is because they didn't, Obey God, as it says there, they weren't able to be circumcised. So now, they're in this place where they are circumcised. And it seems like, because of that sin, then they're in a dangerous and precarious place. But in reality, God is able to work all these things out for their good, isn't He? This is why we shouldn't fear, then, what others necessarily do. We believe that God is really in control of these things. And then fourthly, this also remind us that our sins do affect others. We can't say, well, since God's in control over thing, and since He can take my sin and make good out of it, it doesn't matter what I do. Then. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying your sinful actions are not just to yourself. We're going to see this in an upcoming chapter. The sin of Achan, his sin, got his whole family stoned. No one sins privately. So this idea, well, I'm in my own home, I do what I want, no one should be... That's just, it doesn't affect anyone, we think. That's just not true, it does. Our sins affect others. And yes, it's true. Thankfully, God takes it and makes it good. But the sin is still ours. So let's be careful. Fifthly, you notice here, before they partake of the Passover, what must they do? They have to be circumcised. Here again, there ought to be obedience before we come to worship the Lord. To think that there's no preparation before we come into this place. No wonder we're robbed of so many blessings. No wonder we may seem that everything's so dry when we come to God's house. Well, are we preparing ourselves for worship? Have we been obedient in the past week? And then we think, well, I'll just come to church and confess it and everything will be okay. That's kind of the attitude some of us have. We party all week, come back to church on Sunday, and then everything's fine. That's not how it works. God is to be obeyed seven days a week, not just on the Lord's Day. And then sixthly, lastly here this morning, we see that Christ is our captain. What do we have to fear? If God be for us, who then can be against us? Romans 8. Right in the middle of the doctrine of justification by faith. The idea that Christ is for us. 
He is our king. He is our commander, just as he was the captain of the Lord's host in the Old Testament. It's still so today. And as the mediator, as he is our prophet, priest, and king, and in particular as our king, he does fight and protect us. You know, heaven is going to reveal someday. We may not see it all and understand it all, but heaven one day will reveal all the times that Christ has stood in for his people at this time. We don't see the invisible things going on about us and all that taking place. We don't know the dangers that are around. We think everything's fine. I mean, we've got a, a government that watches over us. Hardy, har, har. I tell you who's watching over us. It's God. As He is our King. And He has delivered us many a time that we know nothing about. And then we see those visible protections that He gives us on a regular basis. But how much more are those invisible things that only heaven itself one day will reveal? Isn't that a gracious thought? To see how the, the unfolding providence as we see it today will be in heaven a lot clearer to us. Well, obviously then, just as Joshua fell to his face and worshipped the Lord, when we think of who he is, we ought to do so as well. He does deserve all our honor, all the reverence, and the glory that certainly is due to his name.